Unto us a child is born. Unto us a Savior is given. So over the next few weeks, we'll be digging into this idea of being unto us. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 for the next few weeks. And this week, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And over the next few weeks, then we'll look at Isaiah chapter 9, just verse 6, because there's so much packed into just that little piece. So Isaiah, you have Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah. So Psalms is kind of like right in the middle, and then go a little bit to the right, and you'll find Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. Now, he was a major prophet. Now, to be a major prophet meant you had to talk a lot. So you know someone who's an extrovert and they talk a lot, you can just call them a major prophet because they just talk a lot. They're just kind of always talking. So Isaiah was one of those. He was someone who consistently had something to say, consistently God was speaking through him. And so about 700 B.C. is about his ministry. So for about 40 years, he was prophesying. He was a prophet and going around teaching and preaching and prophesying for about 40 years. And so one of the things that's interesting about Isaiah is in that time, there was quite a few prophecies, things that he said and laid down that were um, coming to pass at the birth of Jesus. Now, prophecy is an interesting thing. It's something that someone writes or someone tells and that they're so convinced that it's going to happen in the future that they write it down as if it's happened in the past. So it's like this future, perfect, past tense kind of thing. So you're so convinced that something's going to happen in the future that you go ahead and write it in the past tense. Does that make sense? All right, good. Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you just said. That's great. So this is the deal. You know that today you're going to eat lunch. You're so convinced of that that you're going to eat lunch. You've already written in the past tense. And some of you are so already in the past tense, you've already checked out from church. Preacher's up. I've already know. I've got Weichels. I've got whatever it is that you're going to go do. It's already in there. You're going. That's the prophetic future tense. You're kind of moving forward. It's already going to happen. Now, prophecy is an interesting thing because it's so detailed that you think, hey, at noon on Tuesday, I am going to be driving past LaGrange High School and I'm going to see so-and-so do such-and-such. And you're like, there's no way that can possibly happen. Exactly right. That is what prophecy is in Scripture, is Isaiah is been given a word, and he's detailing out some things, specific things that are going to happen in the future with great detail, that as we look back and we see those events happen, you're like, oh my goodness, there could be no other way that that could have been spoken and fulfilled other than someone got a word from God. Now, the beauty of this is that means that God is concerned about the intimate details of our life and the intimate details of the Savior's life, that he planned this out, that the Messiah's birth wasn't an accident, but it was greatly detailed. Here's some math for you, those of you that are mathematicians. One person fulfilling eight prophecies would be one in 100 billion chance. One in 100 billion chance for one person to fulfill eight prophecies. That's pretty minute, right? Some of us are still in pre-algebra. I got it. One plus one equals three. I'm, I'm good. Are y'all in the future tense already? Y'all gone? All right. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's way beyond me, okay? Like I was, I, I got out of calculus and they said, hurry, please go and don't come back. All right? So this morning we're going to be looking at, here's this prophet 
who spoke prophecies throughout the Old Testament. There are over 300 prophecies prophesied about the person of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Over 300 that were spoken, and he fulfilled them in detail. To the letter, he crossed the T and dotted the I. That's how detailed God in his plan, and so that for us as followers of Jesus should give us great confidence that we can look back and see that, listen, God did not make a mistake. He had a plan. He had a road map, and that his son, from the very moment that he entered into unto us, from the very moment that he fulfilled every single step along the way, and he did not miss anything. And so that as we look back, we can with great confidence proclaim, number one, he is God and he doesn't make mistakes. And then number two, that that gives us great confidence in our faith in him and that he is who he says he is. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is our Lord and Savior. So Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, the first thing that I want you to see about the characteristics of this Messiah that is coming, this one that is unto us, and it's kind of an interesting thing, is the first thing is that he was going to be from northern Israel. That sounds real exciting. That's like somebody coming to you and saying, hey, 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 did you hear about the kid being born in Nekonitz? Everybody's like, wow, exciting, right? That's great for them. Because being born in northern Israel is like, huh, okay, whatever. But again, the great detail. Well, I mean, what good comes from Nekonitz? Okay, now listen, I live next to Nekonitz, so I can say that. All right. But what good comes from Nekonitz? And so here's this deal of what good can come from northern Israel. What good can come from Galilee? All right. So Isaiah chapter nine, verse one. This is not the most exciting verse that you're ever going to hear. They're not going to have a movie over it, but let's read it together. Isaiah nine, verse one. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. How many of you are excited? Woo, yeah, exciting things. But in the future, in the prophecy, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of the east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. That's a little bit more exciting to you, okay? Right? I know. Let's throw up a map. That's exciting. Y'all like maps? How many of you like to travel? A few of you? Okay. So here we go. Little little Bible trivia for you. This little green part down here at the bottom Okay, it's up against the sea. You can see Philistine, that's the, the Philistine. He came from there. Y'all remember that guy, the big guy that David threw a stone and got him? Okay, all right. And then we have Judah, and right there in Judah, you see Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so they had to come south, all right? And then right below that green part is Egypt. So after Jesus was born, his father received a word and said, you need to go to safety and you need to go to the nation of Egypt. And so they went down to Egypt. But then Jesus grew up in northern Israel. In northern Israel, we go past Judah down here. We go up through Samaria, where the Samaritan woman lived. And no one that was full Jew would go through Samaria. We've, we'll talk about that some other time. But they went through there. And then that little pink, purple thing up there, it says Galilee. All right, so it's kind of the northern end, and they're kind of like, you know what, we could really do without you guys anyway. We're a good nation without y'all, but we'll include you because we like your taxes, okay? And right in the midst of there, you see the Sea of Galilee, that place up there, and just to the left of it, you see Cana and Nazareth. 
Now, when you think of Nazareth and you think about, man, this just been blown up in history, and we know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, you think, hey, here's the city of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, because it's well known historically. But as a matter of fact, Nazareth, historians and archaeologists tell us, it was amazingly small. Nazareth may have had 150 people at the time of Jesus. Now, that's a pretty small place, an insignificant place. So part of this prophecy, part of this truth is, listen, the Messiah is going to come from the north, from this place of insignificance that the nation of Israel doesn't even want, and it's going to come from that town called Nazareth that you probably don't even know, haven't even heard of, this place of insignificance. I'm going to do something miraculous. I'm going to change the world from this little corner of the earth. For us, sometimes we think that we're insignificant. We come from some little small place, and God wants you to hear that you are from a place of significance. You are his child, and he has great plans and desires for you. So the first thing is he will come from northern Israel. John 1, verses 43 and 46, there's a little interchange between Jesus' first disciples. And listen in on this in John chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip and told him, follow me. So Philip became a disciple of Jesus. And Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. So these guys knew each other, and they were also disciples of Jesus. And so verse 45, Philip found Nathanael, and he told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So in other words, He walks up to Nathaniel and he says, hey, we have found the Messiah. And he is in the person of Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And so that's very specific. He knows they know exactly who he is. And so then in verse 46, here's Nathaniel's response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) And they're like, probably not. Okay. And Nathaniel asked him, come and see. Philip answered. Now, here's the fun part. We don't have time to talk about a whole lot, but the very next part of this story is Nathaniel and Philip and all these guys walk up to Jesus a little bit later on down the trail, and they're there, and there's Jesus standing, and Jesus is like, hey, Nathaniel. They've never met before. And Nathaniel's like, how does this dude know my name? And Jesus says, actually, I don't even know. I just, I don't just know your name. I saw you that very moment just a little bit ago when you were under the fig tree and it was like two o'clock and this little thing happened and he gave him very specific evidence to know that he was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. And Nathaniel said, I now believe that good things can come from Nazareth. The significance of the details that God has planned out, that he even said, this is the place that he will grow up. The second thing that I want you to grasp about this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, is that the Messiah will be one that brings light in the midst of darkness. That he will bring light in the midst of the darkness. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now, in darkness, things hide. All right. So if you've ever been in darkness, there's a moment where you can't really see anything. But after a little bit of a time in that darkness, you kind of grow comfortable, a little bit comfortable with it because your eyes adjust and you can see just a little bit. You may not be able to see too far, but you can at least kind of 
like here around you. Now, in total darkness, you can't even see in front of you, but most of us, when we experience just a little bit of darkness, our eyes will adjust. And so we desire to have a little bit of light in the midst of our darkness, but not too much light, because if we're in a place we're not comfortable with, if there's too much light, then truth will be exposed, and the truth will expose that there probably, there might be a snake, there might be a critter, there might be something out there that's looking at us, about to devour us, or about to attack, and we don't know it, and we would rather sit in a little bit of darkness, not knowing what's out there, than to truly be exposed, because in that moment where truth is exposed, and what's truly out there to get us, we would run and hide. Same is true for us, is that when we walk, we want just a little bit of light. And the, the thing is that there are times in our walk with, with Jesus is that we're saying, hey, Jesus, I would really like for you to expose a little bit more of my life. I would like you to, to give a little bit more light because I would like to know that in, that in two years what my job is going to be like. Father, I, I would like to know in, in two years how much money I'm going to be making. Jesus, I, I would like to know in two years that my, my kids and my grandkids are at this place and everything's good, that they know you and they're pursuing you, that, that we want that kind of truth. We want Jesus to expose those kind of things so we can see the path and walk it with, we think, a little bit of greater confidence. But Jesus does this thing in, in that way of exposing light is he just gives us kind of like the little candle light and just enough to take the next step. Just enough to have confidence to know that, hey, right here is a safe place. Right here is a place of assurity. Take this step and trust me that, that I'm protecting you, that I'm providing security for you, that you don't truly want to know what's out there ready to devour you. Trust me that this is the path. And the other part of that is that if we truly were honest with ourselves, we don't want light to really get into the dark recesses of our heart and soul. Because we've done a really good job of, of hiding and sweeping and moving things into places where it's kind of dark and dank. And, and we don't really want that light to expose that because that would be embarrassing for us. And so the beauty of this is that Jesus says, I come to be light. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says to his people, I am the light of the world. And that as I walk, whenever I walk, light comes to darkness. And so as a follower of Jesus, this whole light thing means that we have a, a light that we can take steps with confidence that he's guiding and directing our path. And so we may not know two years, we may not know three years, we may not even know two weeks ahead, but we can know that tomorrow we can step with confidence on where he wants us to go because he's given us enough light there. But also we desire as we grow in our faith for God to expose with light the places of darkness in our life because we know when there's exposure of light to the darkness that life can then come. That life can come out of the dark places that have now have been exposed to light. And that that's the beauty that Jesus says, hey, I have come so that you may have light and you may have life to the full. The third thing that I want you to see about this Jesus person that's coming, is that he will increase those that will have an opportunity to enter into the God's kingdom. In other words, salvation will come to many. Where at this time, salvation comes exclusively for those that are Jews. Salvation comes through them and them alone. And there's a few stories along the way where people are brought into the faith and, and that. But for the most part, Jewish people are the ones that are experiencing what it means to be a follower of God through Yahweh. And so the Messiah is coming and he will open up 
the nations. He will open up salvation to all tribes and tongues and nations. Isaiah 9.3, he says this way. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. Now, how many of you have been to a party with three people? That's an exciting party, right? Like, whoo, we're going to have a birthday party. Yay. Right? Three people like, yay. Okay? Like, you know, there's three of you. Okay? That's really not a really cool party. Now, imagine going from a party of three to a party of 300. Now, that's feeling pretty good. You're like, hey, we can get some music. Somebody, everyone, everyone, somebody will dance maybe. You know, there's a little party going. And then from 300 to 3,000, that's a little bit more. Got those things. You've been to some of those concerts. And, but how many of you have been to a place where there's 30,000 people? And they're all focused on the same thing. And, and then the party gets going. There's rejoicing. Like, you know, hey, somebody scores a touchdown. The, your singer comes out. And you're like, yeah. You know what I mean? The party is going on. Because you imagine the same thing that you're, Football game or your things going on and the dancer comes out or the singer comes out and there's three people like, hey, I mean, it's not the same party, right? And so here this is Jesus is we're being foretold about Jesus in the future. The party in heaven is about to just explode beyond measure because we're going from the small party to a larger party. The truth is Jesus has come for everyone now and we're enlarging who can say yes and who can enter in. The party in heaven is going to be huge. And so he tells us, and he gives us a little bit of an illustration. This is, again, exciting stuff, I know. It says this, the people rejoice before you as they rejoice at harvest time. Y'all are rejoicing. How many of y'all rejoice at harvest time? Yeah, all right. You go to HEB now for harvest, right? You go to Walmart for harvest. We don't kind of do that. But in this day, they were very dependent upon Mother Nature to provide fruit. And so sometimes it was a year, two years, three years until harvest came. And so when harvest time happened, there was a rejoicing that happened. One, because they could eat. They could probably feed their neighbors. They could feed the community. And so everyone together would celebrate, hey, here is a harvest time. As a matter of fact, how many of you are excited about harvest time when lettuce comes back? Just a couple of you. I mean, I was in ATB and they stole lettuce from me. I know I look like a lettuce fiend. I know I do. But I, I mean, you just, you're ready for harvest time and the party that would happen. Then the other illustration that he gives, not just a party because of harvest, but a rejoicing because of the dividing of spoils. So imagine a group's coming back from war and they've gotten all this, the spoils and they come back to the, to the village where they're at and they're saying, hey, here's a candlestick for you and here's a plow for you or here's a whatever. And you're thinking, wow, that's really exciting. But listen, if you're poor and you ain't got nothing, and someone says, hey, here's a golden candlestick, you're thinking, I don't really need a golden candlestick, but I can melt that down, and I can make something with it, and I can do. And so there's rejoicing over, I have the ability now to provide for myself. There's salvation through the spoils. And so that the kingdom is being opened up and expanded through the Messiah, that everyone, every tongue, every nation, every tribe can proclaim the name of Jesus. And the party will be big. The next in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 17, it says, verse 15, it says, So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Okay, that literally is the cosmos, the entire universe, everything that is created. God so loves it that he gave his one and only son so that who? Everyone that believes in him shall have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Everyone in the Greek means everybody. No matter whether you're rich, poor, tall, short, got social status, don't have social status, whatever. It is equal footing at the cross. That's what everyone means. The next thing that I want you to see is not just beyond salvation, but he will shatter oppression. He will shatter oppression. Verse 4. For you have shattered their oppression. This is, again, futuristic, prophetic tense. You have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders. So imagine someone carrying something on their shoulders and, and the slavery that that would invoke in their minds. And the staff of their oppressor. Think of a king oppressing his people, just as you did on the day of Midian. Now, the day of Midian is the story of Gideon, and Gideon had a whole bunch of soldiers, and God said, listen, you don't need that many soldiers because I'm in charge of the army. And so he whittled that army down to 300 soldiers. And so Gideon and his 300 soldiers and the power and the strength of God alone overcame a much larger army. And so the message to Gideon and to the people, the nation of Israel was, I will fight your battles. You are not strong enough to defend yourself without me. And so what here Isaiah is saying in the prophetic sense is that in my strength, God, in God's strength, I will shatter oppression. I will break the yoke of slavery. Now, this idea of yoke is several different things. One is we think of the yoke of oxen, that they would put a yoke on oxen, and those, that's a heavy burden, and it was to control, and it was to, to manipulate so that the oxen would go in exactly the way that they wanted to go at the speed that they would want them to go. Now, interestingly enough, that very term yoke meant for oxen also then became the descriptive word for the teaching of the rabbis of the Jewish religion. And so that they were giving over a yoke, a teaching to their people. Now, a yoke, what does it do? It burdens you. It controls you to guide you and manipulate you. So think about this, that Jesus is saying to his people, I have come to bring you a light yoke a yoke that is not burdensome to you. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I am literally, I've given you a yoke that is easy, a teaching that is easy and light. So in comparison to the Jewish rabbis who are teaching and putting religion on people, Jesus says, hey, I am coming to bring salvation to you. That is the burden is easy and light. And it is this, that if you believe upon me, you shall have salvation and new life in me. Whereas The teachers of the rabbis of the day are adding all kinds of different things. And now if you've been around church long enough, we're really good at doing this as humans. We we add things to the faith, right? You can do this or you should do this and you can't do that. And so many times as Christians, we're known more for what we can't do or what we're against than what we're for. And so the yoke is light. The burden is easy because Jesus says, hey, I've come that you might have rest. How many of you need rest? Okay. Sometimes it feels like it's a burden to come here on Sunday morning. It's a burden to get to group. It's a burden to do some different things. And so what I want you to grasp is this, is that Jesus has come that you might be free. It is for freedom that you have been saved. Rest. Sometimes we do things Because we're still trying to earn our salvation. We're still trying to earn approval before God. 
We think that we've got to do some different things. We've got to clean up. We've got to say certain things. We can't partake in this or whatever. And so you've got all these different things. You've got this yoke that's upon you, this burden that's upon you, that's manipulating you and driving you in certain ways. And in many ways, that yoke is driving you from Jesus and his rest. So what I want to challenge you with is this, is to challenge the yoke and and make sure that that is truly scripture that is truly what god wants for you and and has for you and asks for you because many times the things that humans place on is meant for good but actually burdens and jesus came so that we can have freedom and his yoke is light and his burden is easy love your neighbor and love me with all of you got love your neighbor and love me with all you got Show your neighbor how you love me by the way that you love them. That's it. That's our, that's our mission. That's our vision. That's what we're all about. The last thing that I want you to, to grasp beyond the fact that he's going to shatter oppression is that he will eliminate the enemy. In Isaiah 9.5, it says this, For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, at the end of a war, the end of a battle... The enemy, whenever to get rid of the enemy, to totally eliminate the enemy, you've already eliminated them, and then you pile up all of their stuff, anything that was used for battle, whatever, you would put it in this big pile and you would burn it. And one, it was showing the people that, hey, you've won, but then that's all. You're, you're also telling your enemy, the people from afar that are watching, hey, this battle is over and we have won and we have eliminated you. Here's the truth in this passage is that they say that the Messiah is coming to eliminate our enemy, not just to just kind of do a fight, to do a battle, but to totally eliminate the, the enemy and to do away with them. First John chapter three, verse eight, the son of God was revealed for this very purpose to destroy the devil's works. As a matter of fact, if you read a little bit further on and you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it says at the end of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, that we will have victory through the person of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want you to grasp as well, is that you have victory. If you proclaim the name of Jesus, you have victory. You have already won the battle. Now, the struggle is, many of us still struggle with temptation. All right? I won't get a raising of hands because everybody should go up. Okay? How many of us still struggle with temptation? Don't raise your hands. All right, some of you did. You're real honest. We all struggle with temptation. Temptation is means you are human. Congratulations. Give yourself a hand. You are human. Okay? Human is good. You're going to have temptation. Jesus had temptation. He was like us in all ways in our humanity. The deal is for us as humans is we recognize I am tempted, and each one of you in this room are tempted in a slightly different way because you are unique individual. You are a unique child of God. And so the devil knows exactly what you are tempted by. He knows the apple that appeals to your eye. And so in that moment that you are tempted and it appeals to your eye, stop, recognize the truth that in this moment I'm being tempted and step back from temptation and say, because most of the time when we're tempted, we're tempted when we're tired. We're tempted when we're angry. We're tempted when we're depressed. We're tempted when we're bored. We're tempted when, you know what I mean? 
all the different things. And so in those moments, those are the reasons that we're tempted. So recognize, hey, I'm being tempted. Pull back and say, am I bored? Am I angry? Am I frustrated? Am I depressed? And solve that, jump into that. And the best way for you to solve that, the best way for you to jump into that is this, is use that cell phone that you've got and call or text your friend. A true friend that knows you and that you trust, that you can say, hey, listen, Right now, I'm struggling with this, and I need you to get my back because I'm about to jump ship. Now, that takes courage on your part to, one, for someone to even know that, but then it takes courage in that moment to step back and to say, listen, I'm dialing 911. I need a friend. I need help. I don't want to go down this road. I've been down this road, and I know what it is. It, it's not a... a place of victory, but a place of defeat. And I am a child of the king who has already won the fight. So I want to live out of that mindset. I want to live out of that heart set. I want to live out of of that idea of, listen, I am moving toward victory and I am not going back to the place of defeat. But to do that means you have to do the battle with someone who's got your back. And in that moment of temptation, when you want to run because the battle is hard, When you want to run away, you call out to your friend that you're doing battle with and saying, do you have my back? Do you understand where I'm at? And they stand with you and they fight with you. Even at the moment when you need a rest, you can turn and they can be on the front ends of the battle with you and stay and say, listen, we are going to win this fight together. And what does that look like for us as followers of Jesus to move down this place? For he was revealed for the purpose to destroy the works of the devil. For us today, the prophetic future is that in this place, as as followers of Jesus, we've said yes to him. In this moment, he's working this out. This is our now and our future, and we're trying to live in our future today. Unto us, a child is given. Unto us, a Savior is born. For followers of Jesus The beauty of this passage is this, is that we should have great confidence that our God has detailed the plans of our Savior. We should have great confidence that our God is going to stand with us and He's strong and that He, if He can plan out this detail, the end is planned in great detail as well and that His victory will be our victory. So over the next few weeks, over the next few days, may you be challenged. May you think about what is... This mean unto us a son is given. Unto us a Savior is born. Let's pray together. Father, I admit there's days of doubts. There's days of questions. And the Father just rereading these passages and rethinking through these things is it's challenging, it's confirming, it's reaffirming, it's solidifying to know that with great detail, with great exactness, with great care, with great purpose, you sent your son. Father, you sent him from an 
from an insignificant place to change the world. Father, that you have come to shatter oppression. You've come to bring great victory. You've come to bring salvation to all who would hear and respond. Father, I pray over these next few weeks that we would be challenged by what it means for you to be a wonderful counselor, an everlasting father, prince of peace. That this child laid in a manger over 2,000 years ago has changed the history of the world. May you be brought glory and honor to the way we live. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.